Hey, beautiful people, and thank you for listening to the Bang 2-3 podcast. If you find this funny, entertaining, or insightful, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to make my day, go show us some love on our Instagram page, because I love each and every single one of you. Thank you for listening. How, how long were, were you a pastor? So you said you were a youth pastor for how long? Uh, seven years, and the average is 18 months, So, I, and I was 39 with the job, so... Dude, youth pastor is such a unique job. Yeah, I beat the Talk average. about that. Yeah. What what was that like? Because what, what's the age dem- demographic you're working with? Uh, well, I started out high school. So, you know, you're the late 14, 15-year-olds through 18, somewhere in there. And then, as happens in any church, <laughs> we had a head pastor leave, and then we had the junior high guy leave. And then I inherited the junior high, and then I inherited the college group. So at one point in my pastoral ministry, I was all the way down to like 11 years old, all the way through into people's mid-20s, because, you know, college is the new 30 now. So, yeah, it, it was quite a range on on any yeah. given week who I was talking to and what kind of message I was having to give them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so tell me, what are like some challenges that you see the youth, or that you that you witness the youth going through? What were some of the main challenges in their life? Yeah. So, see, I started uh, youth pastor. Well, I started my whole career out of college back in the '90s, uh, teaching junior high, and it was interesting. Kids are kids, right? I mean, so I dipped my toe back into uh, the world in 2009, I think. Uh, as a youth pastor, and uh, kids are dealing with, it's a different world for sure, but kids are dealing with a lot of the same problems. They're worrying about, you know, themselves and how they are perceived by their peers and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's just things are happening, seem to be happening a lot faster with technology having sped up. So, you know, word gets out faster and, uh, everybody's uh, opinions are formed faster. And uh, so you're trying to stay ahead of the curve. That, that was the hardest thing for me as a youth pastor is trying to, it was the um, early adoption of Facebook, which I know youth don't even, they're not even on Facebook, but then when Instagram came out, I was an early adopter just because I had to be right. Started a podcast. I did three episodes of a podcast in 2011 before podcasting was really even a thing. Um, So just trying to stay ahead of the curve mostly and uh, figure out what is speaking into their lives uh, and kind of not being, uh, trying to meet them on square one. Right. So they're walking through the door and they're talking about something. I don't want to have to be the one that says, "Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you explain it to me, please? Right. So, um, (laughs) Yeah, just trying to be relevant as best I can. Yeah, yeah. Hey, my best friend has this vape pen. Do you think I should hit it or not? What? Exactly. What's a vape pen? <laughs> exactly. Well, fortunately, so, I had uh, I had my own kids. I had two boys, and then I had them coming up through junior high when I got hired. So I was their youth pastor in high school, and uh, so if I had any questions, I asked them at home of my two boys to uh, get kind of on the same page with everybody. So that was good. Whenever I was going to church, uh, 
whenever I was a teenager going to church, uh, going to youth and, and all of this stuff, looking back on it, what I kind of noticed now was that a lot of these kids and a lot of my buddies and people I went to school with, they so much didn't get the sermon or the message or even God or the Bible a lot of times. Now, a lot of times they did. Okay. This is, this is not for all, but a lot of times what I noticed was they were just extremely broken kids who was in a screwed up situation at home and they would go to church and they would just get loved on. The youth pastor would love on them. All of me and my friends would love on them. We would say, Hey man, let me buy you some McDonald's. And it just felt like in that brief moment at that church service, it didn't matter if they were getting the message or not, but they were getting the one thing they needed and the one thing they weren't getting at home, which was just love and unconditional love. And Hey, we just, we just want to hang out with you. We don't care if you have tattoos. We just, we think you're cool. Did you see that uh, as you were a youth pastor? Oh yeah. Yeah. And you, it it would be easy to say, you know, you got two types of kids. You got the stable family kids coming in, parents have brought them. And then you got the other kids that just, I don't know how they ended up there. I mean, neither of their parents are going there, even if they've got one or two in the house. Um, And those are the kids that have maybe more visible problems. Uh, The longer I did it, the more I realized, you know, every kid's got problems. I mean, even the kids from the standard, especially if they grew up in really overly bearing, uh, strict, uh, Christian type households, those can be dangerous <laughs> situations as well, just from a, a more subtle standpoint. Right. Um, but it's the kids that come in that, uh, from unstable situations that I had to constantly talk to, cause I'm a Bible guy. I mean, Studying the Bible turns me on. It cr- turns my crank. I just I get into that. And then you got a kid walking through the door who's crying. And, you know, I've been focusing maybe on what I'm going to share out of the Bible for the last two days preparing for this. And then the kid's walking through the door crying. And it's like, you know what? What's more important here? What's They're never going to hear what I'm going to have to say anything about the Bible if, the you know, the old adage they Till they know you care, right? So, just uh, being able to set stuff aside and say, "Let's deal with this uh, human being first. Let's get to know them. Let's build some trust." Um, I was part of a, a youth organization called Young Life. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a non-denominational, uh, worldwide organization. And their adage was, uh, "Just it's a sin to co- uh, to bore kids with the gospel." Um, but they also said you have to earn the right to be heard. And you, the only way you earn the right to be heard in any circumstance, whether it's with kids or adults, is you just got to spend the time with them and show them that you care about them, and that it's not just about the information you're trying to uh, disperse, but it's more about um, the that relationship. And I think youth pastors are kind of forced to do that well because – Kids see through that BS real quick. <laughs> if, if you're just there for the paycheck, um, they can pick up on that and they won't listen to you at all. So, yeah, plus I was a little bit older. I was 39 when I got my youth pastor job, which is just incredibly unusual. But life circumstances, I had spent 18 years selling real estate. and 2008 happened, and I don't know how old you were in 2008, but uh, the whole financial market just went upside down. So 
I was looking for a new job and uh, I had done youth work in my previous life. And so I got in there and I think, I think being a 39 year old youth pastor starting out um, with a wife who was a counselor, <laughs> uh, wow. just, you know, you know, kids are walking through the door hurting uh, to begin with. So you do everything you can to kind of connect with them on that level first. Yeah. Because I, they, they just don't get that, it, which is crazy. Kids, uh, bro, kids come from crazy situations, crazy. And you would never know. You would never, ever know just looking at them. Um, and a lot of them, they don't even realize like, oh, no, it, it's normal for my mom to work three jobs. And my dad's not here. He's been in jail for 15 years. And oh, yeah, my mom, she she's not doing drugs. It's her medicine. She it's her medicine. That's she smokes her medicine. That's, that's normal. I'm like, dude, this is not normal, bro. Um, okay. So you're a pastor, you have kids and you said your wife is a counselor. Okay. Yeah. So this is the ultimate test, right? So if, if, if you've been to church, okay. For any amount of time, yeah. you know that there is a stereotype and I hate stereotypes, but I'm going to ask you about it. So you can, you can smack me if you want. Preacher's kids are the worst kids. Preacher, as soon as preacher kids get out of the house, they wild out. This is a this is a stereotype. I don't I don't know if it's true, but it was definitely something that was talked a lot about whenever I was going to church. How did you raise your kids, and are they wilding out right now? Oh uh, yeah, so you're right. I mean that's a stereotype, and uh, you know you think you have kids, and you think. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this my way. And it just turns out <laughs> the, the kids have their own minds and, um, we did the best we could. And that's, that's kind of a mantra that my wife and I have is we think everybody's doing the best they can. And we certainly were with our kids and we look back and like, oh man, we made so many mistakes. We, uh, and part of it is just the church culture, uh, for a pastor. So let me, let you see behind the curtain a little bit here. Uh, you're a church pastor. And like, I went to my ordination interview after several years on the job and ordination is a, a title they give you once you take enough classes to learn about that particular church's beliefs and you kind of sign on to that uh, belief statement. And then they bring in like 12 pastors and sit you in front of them and they pelt you with questions. And I had to bring my wife to that interview. And I'm thinking, okay, what other job do I do? I, they're not paying my wife, right? And in one sense, I get it. I mean, the pastorate is kind of an all or nothing. I was a real estate agent for a while and I carried a pager. It was back when pagers were actually being used. You didn't control when that pager went off. And much the same in the pastorate, you just get calls all the time. So you've got to make sure the spouse is on board. So I totally get that part of it. But it's just yeah. like there was this expectation that, oh, the wife's on board too. It's like we're hiring you, but we're also hiring your wife. And in turn, we're also hiring your kids to act like they should. And so, right? And that's kind of... It's a great point. If, it, if, it's, not, if it's not stated or written down anywhere, it's certainly an unwritten rule that... Yeah. Um, just make sure, you know, you know, and the Bible even talks about if you're going to be an elder in the church, you have to be, you know, a certain type of person. You have to be a husband of one wife, a lot of debate of what that means, but 
You have to um, you have to be an upstanding guy. Your kids have to be in control. You have to have control of your kids. And I'm like, holy cow! How do you even how do you even do that? So to answer your question, long winded. See, I'm a I used to be a pastor. I can I can <laughs> I can take a long time to answer a question that could be answered in like 30 <laughs> seconds. Um, my kids uh, were great kids growing up. They followed rules. They did everything, and like every other kid, they've had their time of exploring what the world's like. And of course, um, I found out what a vape pen was because my kids were using them for a little bit, and <laughs> you know all of the stuff. So I think what we try to do, especially within church culture, which is unfortunate, is we try and hide and put on this facade of you know, what my life is like and, oh, isn't it, isn't it great? And aren't my kids really nice? No, let's just be honest. I mean, kids are kids. They're going to, they're going to do bad stuff at times and they're going to do great stuff at other times and we need to be proud of them no matter what they're doing. So, yeah. I think you, you've just touched on my biggest gripe with the church. Um, And it's not a, it's not a big one, but me, I'm from the South. I'm just, I'm clarifying all, this is one person's experience, right? Yeah. So this is a small sample size, but my biggest gripe was, dang, man, it was so clicky and it was exactly what you're saying. Your life has got to be perfect. You might, uh, um, for a lot of the regulars that went to church, we might as well just X out the word church and replace it with fashion show too. Right. Because everybody, oh, oh my gosh, did you see, you see what Aaron's wearing? Oh my, did, did he go shopping? I need to get that. And it was so freaking clicky. And it seemed every time I would go to church, I would come home with hope because of what the preacher said, but I would also come home with despair because I was like, my life is nowhere near as good as these friends that I have, um, the, the door greeters. The past, everybody's, their shoes are nicer than mine. Their cars are nicer than mine. Their conversations are more intellectual than mine. Um, they put more money in, in the uh, offering jar than I do. I smell worse than them. Um, all of this, I was like, man, I just feel so bad. How do you combat against this culture that seems to be pervasive in church? Yeah, I I mean, unfortunately, I, I, I think, that part of church has to die. I mean, and I think part of part of what we experienced in the pandemic was people got a chance for a brief little moment in time to experience church maybe in a different way. It broke up the routine, in other words. Um, you've also got a new generation coming up. And with every new generation, this happens outside church culture as well as, you know, in business world and everything. The next generation is going to largely define what mode works for them. Um, the, the church that was created in the fifties and sixties and seventies, that is desperately trying to hang on, uh, that culture, uh, that's going by the wayside and it's going by the wayside pretty quickly because of for, I mean, for decades now we've within church culture, we've been talking about, Oh, the youth aren't staying with it. There's you're sticking with it and through the high school and then they get some freedom and they're choosing not to come back to this building. And mm-hmm. I think the conclusion is that a lot of people think we've just got this whole pagan generation. And 
what I'm finding is people are still people, let's say, of faith, uh, and it may not look exactly like you know their parents' faith, but they're they've got some amount of uh, something within them that says I have hope in in yeah. something larger than myself, right? And if you want to call that God, then they're going to have to define for their generation what that looks like, what community in a group of people of like-minded faith looks like. And I, I just think that the days of opening the doors, you know, twice on Sunday morning and night and Wednesday night and expecting everybody to be there dressed up nicely, looking their best. I think those days are quickly disappearing, if not already gone. So um, you know, in yeah. the in the early two thousands, you get the seeker sensitive movement, and everybody's trying to, you know, how do we get the non believers? People have never set their foot in church inside the building, and so we got to make it comfortable for them. We got a lot of coffee houses within the, you know, lobby of a church now, and all we're doing all this stuff trying to make it look better. The problem is. Yeah. Uh, even you can dress up a pig, right? You can put lipstick on a pig and it's still got some issues. Um, it's still going to smell bad at certain times. And, you know, that's, you, you get that in business though, too. Uh, you know, I own my own company and um, there was a culture within my company and that culture had problems as well. So I think it's partly a human condition and partly definitely a, a church culture that we've propagated and, uh, told ourselves that this is the way it should happen and it's largely cultural and it doesn't need to happen that way. So it can look, it can look a lot better than it does. Uh, but what Not a, we, to be fair, uh, yeah, go ahead. D- where, where I currently live outside of church is like this too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody it just so, so, Southern Louisiana is very clicky. It's about who, you know, it's yep. it, so it, it makes sense that it, it made its way into the church. Yep. And my favorite part of the church, which you touched on was the freaking coffee houses in the church. They're <laughs> yep. incredible. Great yep. idea. <laughs> yeah. So I like the, uh, you know, people get creative with, uh, uh, the names of those coffee houses too, right? Like sacred grounds or, uh, Hebrews Cafe was Hebrews, mine. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <Hebrew. laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. But, uh, but, but yeah. So, and to be fair, like, like you said, uh, you made a great point. All cultures have problems. Yeah. Uh, sports cultures, high school cultures. We know kids get bullied relentlessly. Um, but this, it, it was just really interesting for me to hear you talk about that. When it's something that I experienced, um, well, and we're so all just, what? I was just going to say we're all just imperfect people, right? I mean, and trying to do the best yeah. we can, but we're we often don't do things well, no matter where we go. So why should we expect any different when people show up at church? Um, it's just, um, yeah. I think I think putting for me the big problem with church is pretending that we're not broken people when we go there. And that's the part of the culture that I think is most annoying um, is why are we pretending? We're the ones that um, should probably be most honest about that because of the venue, the, the genre of the venue that we're in. We're, we're trying to make changes within ourselves for the better. I mean, that's what this whole Christianity thing is kind of about is, 
you know, a fallen yeah. nature, a sin nature, and let's overcome that. And yet we get there and then we pretend like we're, we don't have problems half the time. So, yeah. So, so how, how do you, about no, let, let's freaking talk about it. Uh, so <laughs> how do you do that as a church or as a pastor, as a leader of a church? How do you make it? Because the the question is, how does the person feel when they walk in, right? That's what we're trying to control. And it's hard to control what someone else feels. It's hard to control that, but you can control it to a certain extent. So how do you portray that to the person who just walked in, who reeks of cigarette smoke, who is hungover? Uh, Maybe they're still a little stoned from the night before. How do you make that person when they walk in and they see everybody else dressed so nicely? How do you make them feel like, hey, it's okay? I, I'm I am okay being here. I feel welcome. How do you even do that? That seems impossible. It, well, you got to lead, uh, just like any organization. Uh, the The tone that the leadership gives, I think, goes a long way. Now, what's different within a church? Uh, if you've got a business, uh, you're hiring that leader, and that leader really kind of has control and has the ability to get rid of people that don't fall under the new moniker, you know, the new direction. Uh, within a church, oftentimes the opposite is exactly what's going on. You've got sometimes a new leader that comes in, but you've got the the core of the church body that's been there, the attenders, and they've been all they've all been there for twenty five years, and they're really the ones that are setting culture, and they know, at least yeah. in my experience. And this happens in a lot of cases, not every church, but uh, a lot of cases, you know, a pastor will stay for four or five years. And so these people that have been attending their whole life, they know, oh, it's just four or five years. We'll put up with a little change, but really we're going to drive the show here. So uh, that makes it a little more difficult uh, to create change within a church uh, because sometimes the people that have the vested interest uh, long-term uh, don't want things to change and you can try as best you can to, you know, dress things down and make them more comfortable for people coming in. But it's really hard sometimes to change people's mindset of why are we here? What should people look yeah. like when they attend here? And I think um, not to get too uh, churchy, but let's do it. Yeah. Well, let me just kind of explain uh, originally uh the, the word that is translated as church, when you read the Bible, the New Testament, it's just uh, an assembly of people that have been called together, okay? That's kind of the idea. It's an assembly. And originally, the assembly, the, the reason those people were assembled is because they had a common faith already. They had already come to a certain belief about who this Jesus character was, let's say. And so— in a New Testament perspective, when you talk about the church, you're talking about people that already believe, and the reason they're coming together is because they already share a faith. So they all mm. kind of look the same. At least they start with a set of common beliefs. The problem that we run into now that we've created in, in our own culture is we call the church, and we open the doors, and we want the complete pagan unbeliever, the person that's never heard about Jesus, who's hungover and smoking, you know, coming in, we got to tell them to put the cigarette out, right? We have decided we want those people in the pews. 
Well, we're just creating a situation where, and this started probably back in tent revivals back in the twenties, right? Where you're trying to get the unbelievers in and get them to sign on to the statement of faith. You know, this is what you should believe. So, um, but where's that circumstance where it's only just the people that have the same common faith, where are they gathering? And that's where you get some people saying, oh, we shouldn't have that type of behavior coming through the door because they're assuming if you're coming through the door, you already have, you already share my beliefs, but we've invited Mm. everybody through the door. So they're going to look really different. And that's, uh, that's problematic in one sense, but it's also what we've chosen to do uh, largely as churches. So um, it, it, we're creating a situation that's really difficult. Like as a pastor, how do I preach to somebody that's been considered yeah. themselves a Christian for 25 years and this has been their church? I'm talking to that person, but right next to them uh, is the guy that's maybe never read the Bible and uh, is hungover and has a certain set of issues. How do I speak to those two people with the same sermon? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So and oftentimes if, you just if, have to dumb it down to a certain level mm. and uh, speak to the least common denominator. And I don't mean that demeaningly. I just mean that from a knowledge standpoint. So the person that has the least amount of knowledge, that's often where sermons have gone recently. Yeah, yeah especially those uh, those Sunday morning ones. Um so if if originally and and I've never heard it explained like that so thank you. Uh yeah. so if originally the church was made for those of a common faith yeah. or what is the original design to get new people on board that faith? How how's that supposed to work? Yeah, so <laughs> this is great. Uh, it's like like I wrote this question for you. This is the <laughs> this is one of my pet peeves, <laughs> right? So the whole idea originally uh, if you go at in the early church in the first, second, third century, uh, you've got these home churches, people just gathering in people's homes. They're talking about their faith, what they believe. They're coming around core values. They're encouraging each other in their faith. Like, that's, I know life is hard. Let's continue believing the same thing. This is maybe an example of why this is happening to you. Let's, you know, give each other support. And then the idea is, you send those people out who are solid in their faith, what they believe and encouraged and supported. And then you send them out to go live their lives and they rub shoulders with people that don't believe the same thing. And that's the model that that's the model. And then as you rub shoulders with people in the world, if you are at all good at being transparent and saying, Hey, you know, life sucks. This is what's happening to me, but here's why I still have hope. And you start conversations out there in the world. Um, eventually, the, the idea is those people out in the world are going to ask the question, man, what is it about you? You're, you're different than everybody else I know. Uh, tell me more about that. And then you start having an individual conversation and you share your faith. This is my core set of beliefs. This is why I believe this. This is, and then you have all that happens like out in the world, but we've brought it inside the church and Mm. we've given that job to the pastor, the guy up front uh, or the youth pastor or or whatever, you know, I've, I'm a parent and I want my kids to fall in line. So I'm going to take them to church and let the youth pastor do his job and, you know, indoctrinate my child. So I, 
I think what we've done, just like a lot of, we like our shows. We like uh, going to a show. We like a good presentation. We like that in the music world. We like that in the theater, Broadway, yeah. all the other things. And our churches have become shows where people can be entertained. And that's not to say that the message that's being given is anti-Christian. It's just the genre that we've chosen to to make it takes uh, the people that are attending the church. It takes kind of the onus off of them to go out and live their lives and and share, you know, rub shoulders with people that don't look like them. Uh, we the church doesn't do that well, and I think maybe hopefully yeah. the next generation of believers uh, are so fed up with you know the last generation and you know picking on certain sins, not others, and ignoring some, that they're just like, okay, let's just be real. And if we can have a generation grow up and they're just out rubbing shoulders with friends and being real, that's the best way to pass along any set of beliefs, whether it's, you know, you were talking earlier, I I believe in my Macintosh computer. Let me go share that to the world, right? <laughs> uh, we all we all yes. have a set of beliefs about you know various things, and we go out and preach it, right? Um, in different circumstances, and that's that's what Christianity should be. Unfortunately, the last few generations, it's morphed into something dramatically different. So that that that's such a good point. Over the years, it seems like uh, so the Bible's written many thousands of years ago, or depending on the book, let's just say 2000 years, right? Christ died 2000 years ago. Um, And ever since then, the original church up until now, it seems like every generation gets Christianity gets a little bit morphed in small ways. Um, I, I I don't know of a better word to say other than soft, get a little bit softer, a little bit softer. Every generation gets a little bit softer. This is okay now. Oh, that wasn't okay then, but it's okay now. Yeah. Or, you know, when does the line get crossed to where it becomes so soft that it's not the same Christianity that was preached and taught yeah. during the first church? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so uh, I guess I would push back a little bit on the softness. And I would agree. We, In our culture, what we've experienced recently, we're definitely becoming more accommodating, right? Um so, and if that's what you meant by softer, I, I guess I would yes. ask you that. Okay. Yeah. More accommodating. Um, part of that is just cultural change. I mean, y- you take, uh, you take believers out of uh, Europe and you put them on a little boat and you bring them over and they're called, they call themselves the Puritans for a reason because they think the church over there is too accommodating and has become too worldly. And so we're going to come over and we're going to start our own thing and we're going to call we're called the puritans because we're more pure than they are right yeah. so you've got some throughout church history you've got some corrections where um maybe it's uh the middle ages the the organized church in the middle ages went too far and then you get a martin luther in the 1500s that tries to correct it right tries to get it back on track and i think sometimes it's hard to see those corrections because we're in the middle of it. And sometimes those corrections Mm. are best seen maybe 30, 40, 50 years down the road. And maybe I won't realize what corrections are happening right now that are good. 
And maybe some of the stuff that I think is good right now that's happening is what you're talking about. It's more accommodation. It's more getting soft. And that's really hard to see in the midst of it. Uh, what yeah. part of this is a cultural change that needs needs revision? Does that make sense? Uh, because yeah. the culture is changing. I mean, that's what generation. What, what, what's for. an example of that? What's an a cultural change that needs revision? So, what, yeah. what example of that be like? Um, I can't have ten wives anymore. Well, <laughs> yeah. Damn it. <laughs> Yeah, and the real question is, why would you ever want 10 hours, right? I mean, yeah, when you could have 11. That's got I'm problems. just joking. <laughs> Jeez. That's got problems written all over it, okay? And uh, for multiple reasons uh, by which I stop talking about that before I get in trouble. But um, what? so let's just go back 50 years. Uh, what was going on in the church 50 years ago? Well, we were a product of our culture. And so if you had a mixed race couple coming into the church building, they were not accepted within the church, but that was largely a cultural thing, right? I mean, they were learning that out in the culture of the problems that we were having specifically in America. That's my, you know, history. So they were learning it in the culture. They were bringing the culture into the church. Now the church should have recognized that and corrected it counterculturally. I mean, as that was going on, the church should have been the place where a biracial couple could have walked in and been accepted, right? That's the type of change that uh, would be not a softening, but that would be a a good thing. But I'm doing that with 50 years hindsight. If we were able to transport ourselves back in time and actually go to those churches, having grown up in that culture at that time— that would have been really hard. That would have been a really hard thing to understand is what should the church's response be to, uh, you know, a, a person of uh, skin colors different here. And I've got a couple and should we accept them? Cause everything I know says, no, we shouldn't. Um, it's, it's harder to see in the moment what changes are good and needed and what changes are just ridiculous changes? Like that's a softening. We we've got to hold the line there. And the problem is, uh, within any faith, uh, and this isn't just Christianity. This is any faith system, um, and even atheism, right? Because that's there's a set of beliefs within atheism as well. Um, you've got to have a core set of beliefs that you're kind of stuck with. Like, I can't really deviate from at least this core set. There's a bunch of yeah. stuff on the periphery that I can probably give and take some because maybe that's more cultural, but I've got this core set of stuff. And the problem is everybody thinks that everything's core. <laughs> so those things that need to be changed, um, somebody's always going to stand up and say, man, I I, I'm not letting go of that because that's one of my core beliefs. When in reality, that's probably not. Probably just, yeah, we should probably let that go. So, yeah, I mean, does that make sense? Is that a good example? Yeah. I, I, so, uh, what would it be today? Uh, you know, one of the big questions in church today is because our culture is uh, going through the whole LGBTQ plus. Uh, generation of exploring that within our culture 
obviously the church has to have those conversations as well. The problem is the church is not, uh, the organization of the church is uh, the larger church uh, denominations and things. It moves way so slowly um, that many of those conversations aren't happening and the church is just getting behind. So what are those conversations? Uh, what should our response be? Similar to 50 years ago when you know a biracial couple walked through the door, what should our response? Yeah. Is this one of our core beliefs that we need to hang on to? Is this something that has another aspect to it that could be looked at differently? Um, all of those things. Uh, and those things are happening so fast in our culture right now. The church is so slow to process those things. Most denominations, for example, will have uh, a like national convention every four years. And those are when the big decisions uh, of policy change take place. And before wow. any change actually takes place, you have to discuss it in a national convention the time before. So let's say I want to talk about, um, let's say I want to talk about uh, hardback Bibles versus soft cover Bibles. I mean, this isn't a thing, but let me, let's yeah. say that's my thing. I can bring it up this convention and we can discuss whether hardback Bibles are really what everybody should have or if soft cover Bibles are fine. Um, but then we're not going to vote on it for another four years after that. And it takes, you know, it's an eight year cycle just to even maybe get something to ballot. And that's only if people really want to vote on it. So slow to change within the church. Part of that's good. It can be good. But our culture is moving so fast right now that. Uh, it's causing the church in some circumstances to become less relevant because they're so slow to move, which. Yeah. That, that seems like a church problem. Like, dude, this oh, should yeah. happen every year or every, every, every six months. If uh, something just struck me while you were talking, isn't so we're talking about kind of like adapting or picking our battles or whatever, based on the cultural changes, you know, the, the culture now versus 2000 years ago is, way different. Couldn't you kind of say that a lot of the Bible and a lot of the things that the Bible says is just, that was just the culture at the time, right? So it was normal to have 10 wives. It was normal to have 10 slaves. It was normal to uh, do a bunch of stuff that is now in the Bible. So what is making us follow the culture from 2000 years ago today or is does that give us permission to look past some things yeah 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 that's a great question um so one of the one of the issues when somebody approaches uh, the biblical text uh, old and new testaments and they go in there um one of the questions you have to ask is what i'm reading is that descriptive of a certain time and place or is it prescriptive, meaning like a doctor writing a prescription, I need to take that medicine myself, right? <laughs> this is great, by the way. You're a great pastor. This is great. <laughs> so so that, unfortunately, that is the question that everybody has to ask. But it is the question that almost nobody asks because they don't realize we haven't done a great job within the church of teaching people hey, this was written to a completely different culture in a completely different time period. And you even turn the page from the Old to the New Testament, and you're 
you're yes. changing cultures again. I mean, you're changing the languages, you're changing everything. So part of the, part of the thing that really, um, you know, I've, uh, we haven't even mentioned it, but I just wrote my first book, Rethinking Rest, and it's just a biblical perspective on what is rest when the Bible talks about that topic. And part of the problem is we've assumed that when the Bible says rest, it's what we mean by rest in our culture, in our, we, uh, I have a friend that calls it a cultural river that we're swimming in, right? Because it's moving all the time. It's changing. And, but we're swimming in it. So we're keeping up with the pace of our own cultural river. But when we die, we, you know, we're out of the river. <laughs> it keeps going. <laughs> they yeah. were swimming in a completely different cultural river. And so the first question we have to ask is what did what I'm reading, what did that mean to the original people that it was written to? What was it supposed to be communicating? And is that descriptive of something that they were experiencing? Or is that just prescriptive, something that I should be adopting as well? And so when you ask those types of questions, the <laughs> reading the Bible just becomes really difficult because everything you read Everything that you read where people are having a conversation, you you know, you've got Jesus showing up, let's say. Well, he's an ancient Jew. He's not a modern Jew. I mean, modern Jewish people have a certain set of beliefs, but that's our cultural river, right, that they're swimming in. And that's morphed and changed over the last 2,000 years. So you really got to be asking the question, what was the cultural river for Jesus that he was swimming in? And when he said that, to that particular person, um, what what did that even mean? And don't assume yeah. that you think you can even know what that means just by an is- initial cursory reading. It's like me trying to pick up uh, Plato's Republic, which I've studied, by the way, and it's a brilliant book, but I had to have somebody explain it to me. Because of all the stuff going on, you know, he went to this place. Well, you got to know what that place is. It's the port city. And, it, you know, so, and this is where all the philosophers hang out and here's what they would have been talking about. And it's like, oh, well, that makes total sense why that character had that conversation in that city. That makes total sense. I would have totally missed it, by the way, right? That's the way we should be reading not just good literature um, from ancient days. That's the way I read the Bible. The Bible's good literature, uh, whether it you is. ultimately believe it to be, you know, God's word or truth or whatever, that you can put that on the side. Bible's just a good piece of literature that is written well and is reflective of a cultural river that doesn't exist anymore. And so we have to do a better job of saying, oh, the Bible presents uh, men with multiple wives. Is that descriptive of just what they chose to do of a certain culture and time that made sense for them? Or is it also prescriptive for us today? And then that becomes much more difficult, doesn't it? Because then you've got to study yeah. the whole stinking thing, right? It's, de- it's definitely prescriptive because I have four other women I need to call right now okay. and my wife needs to be on board. I'm just joking. <laughs> Just, I'm just don't bring up this, my name when you do that. Okay, all right. <laughs> Pastor Greg, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And 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 by by the way, if you if you're listening to this now and you like what Greg is saying, go 
stop listening and go listen to this podcast because this is right up his alley. Uh, Rethinking Scripture is the name of his website. So it's this is like a tee up ad for you, Greg, because I'm serious. Stop because you are the master at this. Um, and I think you you broke it down so elegantly because people beat the church and Christianity over the head with stuff like specifically from the Old Testament with stuff like, oh, so you mean, um, you know, this guy from the Old Testament, Abraham, he beat his slaves whenever they they misbehaved. Oh, what? I'm not going to church. That's complete BS. I'm not. This guy was beating his slaves. So I'm supposed to. Abraham almost killed his son. So, I mean, come on yeah. now, right? <laughs> so, oh, so, so you, yeah. And so, and like people take this all the way to the bank. It's like, okay, so this, the, they take the chain of events. He beat his slaves. He tried to kill his son. So I'm going to go to church so they could teach me to kill my son. This is complete hogwash. It should be outlawed. But you just broke it down so nicely on in how this is just kind of describing how the times were back then. And I'm guessing Abraham wasn't the only one who beat his uh, slaves or who tried to kill his son or who had 47 wives. Like this was just, it's just how it went, man. Yeah. Um, It it was, it was a different time. And what's interesting is when you go back into some of those problematic uh, passages and you know, the, the opposition uh, to the Bible would come out with an argument like, Oh, so-and-so had so many wives, and so how can that be right? And the thought process is, I'll take an example from uh, the Old Testament or the New Testament, and the Bible clearly doesn't teach against it in that story, and so how can the Bible be true? And it's like, well, that's really a short-sighted way of looking at this is just describing, it's descriptive. It's describing who these people were in a culture that no longer exists. And we have to go to the larger scripture, the larger set of scriptures to say, does there anywhere else in the Bible have anything to say about that topic that you're handpicking out of that one circumstance? And sometimes other parts of the Bible will answer the question just outrightly. Oh, that was clearly wrong. That's an example. It's descriptive, but he shouldn't have been doing it because later it talks about how, you know, this. Sometimes those circumstances don't really get explained uh, and answered very well, and those are, those are just the ongoing. That's the fun part of studying the Bible is trying to, <laughs> trying to figure out how to live your life, um, with a document that was written thousands of years ago and trying to apply it to a culture that is so dramatically different than any of those authors would have ever imagined. So that's yeah. just, that's just the fun part. Yeah. And, and also, so yeah, they beat their slaves. They had 47 wives, but they were also freaking crucified on crosses and hung upside down. And, you know, and thank goodness we don't have that happening today. So yeah. we've yeah. progressed in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, can I just ask you just the bare bones question? And I know we could, we could talk about this for hours, uh, how do I get to heaven? How do you get to heaven? Wow. Yes. Yeah. So historic- J- Joe Blow off the street. Joe Joe Blow. Anybody? What's so there is something. Uh, the way the Bible explains it is there is something that you have to come to an acknowledgement of that is the truth, and when you come to an acknowledgement 
of what that truth is, and I'm being very vague right now on purpose, um, when you come to an acknowledgement uh, on the inside of, yeah, I, I think I believe that, I believe that to be true, even though it may not make complete sense right now, even though uh, I don't have all the answers. If I, I come to a, a, a circumstance where I have an internal conversation and I say, yeah, I think I believe that. Um, there is, there is a core set of beliefs that when you come to that faith, um, we believe uh, Christians believe in a God that created this whole thing that knows us better than we know ourselves. And that seems ludicrous to most people. Um, but if that's true, I mean, if, and that's a big if, right? Because yeah. uh, a lot of Christianity just seems ludicrous to most people. It's like, you gotta be kidding me. You believe that. But if that's true, let's just big if, if that's true, if there really is a God, somebody that, uh, a creator that organized this whole thing and he, he or she, or maybe even we don't have the language to describe that God in terms of, you know, our pronouns, because that's our cultural river that we're living in. But if that God character understands your set of beliefs and your heart to be believing the right things about him, what the Bible says is that starts a relationship um, much like a family relationship. And to be in that relationship with that God that created you is the way that it's described as getting to a state that's described as heaven. And heaven's kind of a weird thing because, you know, we think of heaven being the clouds and playing harps, and we've yeah. gotten that completely wrong. Um, so, I, yeah. But... It's yeah. it's around a core set of beliefs, and depending on who you talk to, that core set of beliefs that they think you have to believe is going to change slightly. Okay, that's why I'm being very vague. Um, yeah, it's going to be centered around the person of Jesus and who he was as a real human being that walked the earth, and also as a person that also was not just a human in his body, but also existed before that as God himself. And so we get to see God take on human skin. And then we also believe that he died, like you mentioned on a cross and that he came back to life again, which is just completely absurd. I mean, right. I mean, yes, I totally get it. Um, but if it's the truth, <laughs> it's the best news I've ever heard <laughs> that, 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 the crap I'm going through on a daily basis isn't the end of it. Uh, that would be great news. And that's what gospel means, good news. So um, yeah. that's why people say, you know, let's go share the gospel. If this story that the that the Bible talks about is really the truth, and that's a big if for a lot of people, and I get it. But if it really is the truth, ugh, that's great news. Yeah, I mean, that was just unbelievable news. So— then the real question is: Is it really true? Eh, you can you can have your opinion on that. What what is what is your personal? What is the best evidence or the best case that the resurrection happened? Because you're right. If if it's the entire hinge of the entire Bible, yeah. if you believe the resurrection re resurrection happened, then uh, a lot of other miracles in the Bible are 
they're nothing. Like, oh, this guy raised from the dead. Yeah, of course he yeah. can heal blind people. So yeah. what's your best case for it? Uh, so I'm not an apologist. So uh, just in church world, an apologist is one that studies arguments against you know Christianity and what answers mm -hmm. there can be given for any given. And so you've just asked a question that an apologist would have a field day with. Um, and there are people that have written books, obviously. Uh, evidence that demands a verdict uh, is one of those. Josh McDowell is yeah. out there writing um, I, I'm not challenging you. I, we're, no, we're just no, chit-chatting. No, I'm, so I'm just saying my answer oh, okay. that I'm prepared to give you is not going to be a highly technical one. Okay. So gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> that's because that's just not where I, I live and breathe. Um, when I, when I study, um, as much as I have ancient literature, just in general, not just the Bible, but I've studied a lot of ancient literature. Um, there is a standard for what we consider an ancient piece of literature to, uh, for that ancient piece of literature to be trustworthy, there's kind of a standard. And one of those standards is uh, the replication of that piece. How many different copies of it do we have? Like how many different copies of the Iliad do we have or Homer's Odyssey? And when we go to those copies, we can kind of see uh, the reliability on any given copy because we have so many copies we can see if there's a deviant, right? There's, oh, this one doesn't nice. have chapter four in it. So that's obviously not a good copy, but all the other ones do have chapter four. So chapter four was part of the original story. That's kind of the way I approach uh, the historicity of the Bible as well. Um, this is actually a better answer than I thought I had. So <laughs> I take everything back. <laughs> when we go into biblical world, just as an ancient piece of literature, we have so many copies of that ancient piece of literature. We don't have the original, uh, the one that was penned by the original author, but we have so many copies of second and third generation uh, copies of that literature that from an ancient text standpoint, it passes all of the tests for being a reliable source. Now, then the question becomes, if it's reliable, then the question becomes, were the authors telling the truth or not? Or were they just making it up? Because if it's a reliable source, those are your two questions. Uh, are they telling the truth or did they just make a, this whole story up? And as I've studied the rest of the story, not just New Testament story of Jesus and the resurrection, but studied it as a piece of literature from beginning to end and a collection from different authors over thousands of years, I see something other than human hands on the organization of this story. Um, I've written a book. It was stinking hard writing a book. I mean, to get ideas here coherently onto a page, to have the organization, the grammar, the, I mean, it's just so hard to write a good book. And to think that the Bible came together over a period of thousands of years and many dozens of authors, um, and for it to have a thread running through it that's coherent, that ends with a resurrection that makes sense, not just in its own context in the New Testament, but also prefigured and talked about and hinted towards in the Old Testament context, it just seems reliable to me. And mm. other people come to different conclusions, and I'm not I'm not saying that that 
just is, you know, take my word for it. It's just, I've done enough study and, and I also grew up in a culture, a family and a church culture where I was encouraged to believe it to be true. So obviously that helped as well. But um, as I've grown into my adult body and left my adolescence behind, I've taken a look at the stuff that I was told to believe in my younger days. I've taken a look at it from more of a scholarly level, and it hasn't caused me to change my assumption about the uh, veracity of uh, the story of Jesus, uh, his ministry, his uh, the events surrounding his death, burial, and resurrection, I see them to be plausible. And mm. um, that's convincing to me. And therefore, I believe a set of core values that identifies me with uh, Christianity. And I realize that some people hear the exact same story and look at the exact same text, and they come to wildly different conclusions about whether this whole thing's true or not. And uh, I totally respect those people as well, because we're all doing the best we can with what we got. So so just just to break down a little bit what you were saying. So there are four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? And these are all, the Bible is a book with a bunch of books in it, a bunch of smaller books. And these four Gospels are all, and, and you can correct me where I, I'm wrong, because I know I'm wrong several places. These are all accounts of the life and death of Christ. So four people documented this. They wrote a book, like you said. And what you're talking about is that um, there's there you're talking about there's so many copies of these books floating around, meaning that somebody found those books and then made copies of them, right? Yep. And so, and not only do these four books exist, they were written by four separate people, but the stories also corroborate. One of them, uh, one of them doesn't say that, for example, Jesus was here on this date, and another one says, no, he wasn't here, he was really there, right? So they all, they're different perspectives on the same events. They all mesh, they all kind of say the same thing, and they were repeated, aka copied, throughout thousands and thousands of years, right? Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So four different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you got those right. So you're batting a thousand. I mean, it's really good. You're doing well. <laughs> Thanks, if bro. I was a, if I was a betting man, <laughs> I would bet on you. Um, so Thank Math, you. Matthew, uh, one of the, uh, Jesus had uh, 12 disciples, people that followed him around for like three and a half years during his public ministry. Uh, Matthew was one of those 12. Mark was not one of those 12, but he was a Jewish guy. His mom hosted a church, an early church, and he probably was hanging around Jesus, but wasn't one of the 12. Luke was not a Jewish guy, likely. Uh, he was a Gentile. He didn't. He never met Jesus. Uh, he came to faith through the ministry of Paul, uh, decades after Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus's ministry. And then John, uh, was one of the 12. So Matthew and John are hanging out with them full time, uh, a lot for three and a half years and they're writing theirs. 
Luke and Mark are writing uh, theirs based on other people's uh, stories, okay, largely. Yeah. You've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three are called the synoptic gospels, and that you might hear synonym in that. That's because if you take the content of those three gospels, there's going to be a large majority of the content that is very similar. So it's going to be like you're almost reading the same thing from slightly different perspectives, right? They'll, they'll highlight maybe certain things, put things in maybe a different order slightly. Uh, that happens. John, the fourth one, likely written last after the first three were written. His is dramatically different. His is like, I uh, want to say like 70% different than new content. Um, and interestingly enough, back in the, we talked about cultural rivers. Back in the cultural river of the day, it was very common for somebody to write what was called a diptych, a uh, die to um, two books about culture, uh, about religious leaders, uh, like a mm. rabbi or somebody. They would write the first book talking about that leader and the ministry he had while he was alive. And then they would write a second book about what happened to that person's uh, statement of faith or their beliefs after he died uh, in the people that followed him, his devotees, in other words. So a diptych was a very common way to talk about a religious leader or a leader in general, and then what happened after that leader died. We see that in Luke because Luke wrote his account of Jesus's life, and then he also wrote the book of Acts, which is a book about what happened after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven and left. So um, very common, uh, but knowing that from that cultural river, we should be reading Luke and Acts together because they're written in parallel format. Uh, from a literature standpoint, it is phenomenal to look at this. It's just like, because I always, I always read the Gospels and people read the Gospels and assume that somebody, was, it was happening and they went home that night and they wrote it down, like, this is what happened today. No, these books are re- written 30, 40 years after the fact. So they've, had, they've been telling these stories for years. Um, mm. They are putting them in certain orders, uh, the stories. They're highlighting certain things Jesus said for specific reasons. So that's why when I say I studied it like a piece of literature, uh, you do that. John also did that. John wrote the book of John, the gospel, and the story of Jesus's life, in other words. And he also wrote the book of Revelation, which most people just freak out on because they think it talks yeah. about something yet future to us. But um, in its context, this is, again, a story of a religious leader and then a follow-up story of what happens to that religious leader's message through his devotees after the fact. So it was a very common way. And most people would never think of studying the book of John and Revelation in the same sitting. But they're, again, written in parallel format, and it's just mind-boggling to, to look at it. So, um, so yeah, yeah, so oh. four Gospels, four stories of what happened during Jesus's life. Uh, not all of it. It's largely focused on three years uh, near the end and his death, burial, resurrection, highlighting the end of that story. Yeah. You want to know one of the most uh, compelling cases for the resurrection of Christ— was that 
a lot of his followers and the people who witnessed his death and resurrection died heinous deaths because of their faith. So it's essentially like me saying, hey, Greg, I know you've seen that Jesus guy, so say resurrected. Either you say that you either you denounce him right now, I'm going to skin you like a cat and you're going to scream for hours and I'm going to make it the most slow and painful death possible. And you say, do it because I'm not. And that is such a compelling piece of evidence because if there's anybody who would be like, yeah, this Jesus guy is full of crap. It would be the people who were there when he died and resurrected that day. Right. If I'm Paul, for example, and I seen, and I know secretly, yeah, this guy, he really didn't rise from the dead. Like, I know this is all a bunch of horse crap. Like if I'm Paul, I'm saying, oh, no, you're not about to kill me right now. It's all fake, right? I would not die for a fake Messiah. But they all did. Can you speak about that? Yeah, so um, that's uh, that's one of the common arguments that an apologist is going to bring up is the response if you track through history. Whoa, are you serious? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's like you've written the book. Yo, I'm going to— Like I said, you're about in a thousand. You can write this book. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just some ignorant guy. I I do not know any of this, but it it just struck a chord with me. I'm like, oh, that totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So if you follow, and again, some of these are church history, uh, so we don't have clearly documented how everybody died. But if you follow Hmm. the the apostles and Paul to their deaths, they're making decisions along the way. Uh, History tells us that they could have easily gotten out of situations by just denouncing. Uh, Hey, we were just kind of (laughs) joking that whole thing. We were just joking about it. Right. And they had (laughs) multiple opportunities. And for some reason, this was compelling enough to them that they made choices that often led to their deaths and not pretty deaths. These are, you know, the Roman government was until 300 AD, the Roman government was killing people for claiming to be Christian, which is interesting because after 300 AD, they started killing people for not being Christians. So they were just really into killing people. And it depending on <laughs> what time in history you are, you're yeah. So that, again, that cultural river would have been a hard one to swim down. Um, yes. Yeah. So what's interesting, and this is maybe a little off topic. Um, I don't know if, how I would respond and you know, okay. So I'm I'm a good church guy. I'm a believer. I would love to say, oh yeah, somebody's threatening my life. All you have to do is denounce Jesus, and I won't shoot you right now. Uh, this actually happened in Columbine, one of those early school shootings before school shootings were a thing. Um, yeah. There, the guy was asking somebody, and documented that he asked her, you "Believe in Jesus?" and if you say no, I won't shoot you. And if you do, I, I'm going to shoot you. And she said, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And she died. Okay. I don't know names, but I mean, I heard the story. Um, I don't know how I would respond and I'm just being flat out honest with you. Um, for somebody to get to a point where they're pointing a gun at you and making that demand with that result in our culture, that's not a government sanctioned thing at all. I mean, the government would never do that. So that's an individual making that choice. And when then what's the mental state of that individual? And if I, if I come across a mentally ill person on the street, 
and they're trying to do me harm, I'm going to try and deceive them to get out of that harm. I'm going to play along. I'm going to, does that make sense at all? No, totally. Yeah. What you're saying is they could have the gun to your head and saying, just denounce Christ. And you could even justify it by saying, Hey, you know, these people don't really know what they're doing. You know, they're a little crazy or something like that. But I I think that's, that's so transparent of you to even say that. Cause I think if you said otherwise, you'd be lying, man, that's a life or death situation. Yeah. So, I mean, that's in our culture because our government would never say, uh, we're going to pay you government employee to go to Greg's house and hold a gun to his head and ask him if he believes in Jesus. Right. That's not the culture we live in. Now the disciples, those people that hung around Jesus, they lived in a culture where the government was doing that. And I might have a different response if I was in that cultural river, especially if I had hung out with Jesus for three and a half years. And I truly believed that this guy is who he said he was. And he did what I thought I saw. Uh, I can totally see. Yeah. This is worth standing up to. So, I mean, that's, that's not a very pop, that's not going to be a very popular (laughs) in the church world, what I just (laughs) explained, but I mean, I think it's, I think it's true. You got to read the situation and who's asking the question and are they mentally stable? Is this, uh, is this something I just need to get out of? Is this something, cause I'll say anything to save my life, uh, short of a few things. Right. But, um, like if I'm, uh, if I'm held in, uh, I'm really going off topic and I haven't thought this through. So I apologize do ahead it. of time, but if I'm in Russia and I get arrested for, let's say, trying to bring marijuana into the country. Why would anybody try and do that, by the way, um, if, if I get held? And then I'm asked to say, you know what, we want to videotape you, and all you need to say is the Russian people are really nice, and uh, we really love Russian people, and we'll let you go. Uh, yeah. That's what I'm doing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's be honest. Of course. I'm gonna, and everybody's going to realize what it was. I, it was just Greg. He doesn't really believe that, but he just wanted to get set free. Um. I don't live in a world where we haven't grown up in a world like those disciples lived in, like Jesus lived in. I mean, uh, the story goes that he's a Jewish guy and the Jewish people were mad at him. So they went to the Romans and convinced the Romans to kill him because of just a little internal dispute about him claiming to be God. (laughs) So... Yeah. I mean, I don't live in that type of world. We that's not our existence. Now, maybe in other parts of the world today, uh there are cultures like that and I may have a completely different outlook, but having grown up in America with my sense of individual freedom and all of the things, the cultural river that I'm living in, uh I'm going to I'm going to look heavily at who's talking to me and why are they yeah. asking me a question like that, right? What's their motivation? Yeah. And 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 also, too, to your point about the cultural aspect, you're right. So the, the government put Christ to death, and the government were the ones putting the disciples to death. So while in today we talk about this and we're like, oh, my gosh, this is insane. Back then, that this was not insane. And maybe these people, his disciples and Christ himself, they were just some hardcore guys because— they paid for it with their life. So they knew what they were getting into. I'm guessing it wasn't a situation where it's like, 
hey, Paul, denounce Christ. And, you know, Paul knows they're bluffing, right? I'm guessing it's, so maybe these people were just built differently back then. And they were just willing to die for their beliefs in a way that we are just nowhere near close to right now. Or, or they were just thoroughly convinced of something. And they realized when they were asked the question, they realized the gravity of the question and the importance of their response in that context. Uh, Because um, as a believer, as a Christian myself, I can see circumstances where I would definitely say, no, this is worth dying for. I'm not going to, I'm not going to denounce, but I can see other circumstances. Like I just explained where it's like, that's not what it's about. This isn't, this isn't, you know, this is a mentally ill person, let's say, or somebody that's not thinking clearly. And we just need to get the gun out of his hands (laughs) or her (laughs) hands. Right. Uh, It's always he though, unfortunately. Yeah, it's always the guy. Well, well let, let's just do it right now. Let's let's do it right now. Thought experiment. All right, so let's just. Oh, this is this is going to be hard. Uh, let's just act like you never seen the Bible. Bible never existed, I, and I know that's very hard. Yeah. And let's just say you and me, Greg, we are the disciples of Bob, right? This guy Bob, he claims to be God, and we watch Bob get crucified unjustly. Right? Bob's our best friend. Bob's our best friend. I mean, we look up to him. He's a, he's a he teaches. Guy. He's a freaking great guy. You he gives sermon on the mount. You can spell his name backwards, and it's still Bob. <laughs> yes, he's the chosen one. <laughs> he tells us everything. He gives us great life advice. It turns out to be true. He's wiser than anybody else. He's just yeah. different. He's cut from a freaking different cloth. He yeah. works 80 hours. He donates all his money to charity. Oh, my goodness. And he's just an accountant. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Bob is incredible. And then we watch the the government, the, let's just say the United States government, convict Bob for something that he didn't do. And you know what? The government says we have not had a public uh, death in hundreds of years. You know what? We're going to publicly kill Bob and we're going to crucify that guy. So we watch Bob get unjustly killed. We're crying. He's our best friend. And then uh, three days later, we watch Bob ascend from the grave. We literally watch him ascend from the grave. And now he's in spirit form and he is talking to us after we just watch him brutally murdered i yo i think i would die for bob i I would die for bob this guy is different i think that puts bob on a whole different level i mean right i I, yeah and and having viewed something like that it it's going to be life-changing uh yes if it actually happened and i actually saw bob come out of the grave then holy cow something's going on here that I maybe didn't think was going on and I need to change my set of beliefs and this, something like that, that's crazy. That's crazy important that other people know it. And the only way other people are going to know it is if my story doesn't change. If for some reason my story changes 40 years from now, when somebody's threatening to kill me, uh, I might do so much damage to the truth that I saw that I'm going to, I'm going to make that choice. Yeah. I mean, I've, dude, that, 
That that's it. I, I, imagine your whole worldview. That's yeah. that's the thing, right? So we've been taught as kids, it's everything, and I'm guessing it was the same back then. Yeah. Hey, you die, you know, we put you in the ground, you know, maybe we give you a nice casket, we wrap you up, yeah. uh, you're gone, right? This it's never happened where someone was dead and then they came back. Like this changes everything. This is bigger than aliens coming. It yeah. changes your entire worldview. Well, and then I couldn't imagine. And then let's pretend like there was a book that had been written saying there was a guy coming named Bob and that he's going to do some crazy <laughs> stuff. And let's say we grew up in a yes. culture where that old book about Bob uh, was studied a lot. And it kind of gave a time frame, yeah. like we might be in the time frame that Bob shows up and then Bob does show up and then he does some crazy stuff. That's that's a story worth dying for if that's actually what happened. So, and, and all yeah. the crazy stuff lines up with the book that was written thousands yeah. of years ago. Yeah, in weird ways that we weren't even seeing before, but now that it all makes sense. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. There was a movie called it's What not, About Bob, It's right? not. <laughs> it's not. It's not so far-fetched, man. It's not so far. Just like, I, I I don't know why. I just talked about aliens. Just like if aliens showed up and not like, oh, there's something in the sky, but there's a little green man in front of me, aliens. Yeah, not yeah. the whatever. Is it a yeah. bird? Is it a plane? No, it's a little green man or whatever color. This would immediately change everybody's view, probably including the church. Yeah. Everybody's view of life. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, hold on. No, no we me, have to step me, back for a let second. Let me correct because, you. The, the church would take four years to ask the question, and then the another four oh, years no, don't, to pass Greg. before we had a chance to vote on it to see if we wanted to change our mind on aliens. <laughs> it, that's the process. Make sure you get that straight, Okay. <laughs> that's well no well are little green men allowed in the church i, I don't know <laughs> are they allowed what are, what are we We're gonna have to call a special session for this one <laughs> special session because the little green men they came here they need a place to stay that's hey right. you know we we gave them clothes and stuff but are, are we allowed I, I don't know we need to read through the bible about the little green man yeah <laughs> but yep. i mean but the 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 point is is that this type of event would completely change everybody's view instantly of their life. Yeah. Maybe some good, hey, maybe some become vigilantes and just say yeah. screw everything. Maybe some people worship the little green men. Yeah. But it would change everything, right? And so now imagine, I think everybody listening could put yourself in the shoes that we just described of Bob, aka Jesus. The guy comes and just defies everything we've ever been taught. I mean, come on, this is something worth dying for because what else are you going to die for? Yeah. You know, your yeah, freaking so cats or something like that. I mean, I at worst, it's something to look into, right? I mean, because there's a lot of people making claims yeah. about what they believe that is different than what Christianity believes. So I think at, at worst, it's something to, to at least be willing to look into to see, does this thing even hold water? I mean, is there anything to it? that would cause me to consider, oh, maybe this is the truth. Maybe maybe there is something outside of what I've been taught, uh, a way I've been taught to think or whatever. So we just don't do a, a real good job of rethinking yeah. um, America. <laughs> we've, 
we we like yeah. what we believe and usually that's what we're told to believe we like it and then we hold on to it we get our talking points um whether this be politically or from a work standpoint or whatever we like what we believe and we haven't been really taught to think well and it's rigorous it takes a lot of effort to think well and to think through stuff and to consider other people's viewpoints and um it's just unfortunate. That's so my whole rethinking scripture is just, Hey, let's go back. And what were you told? Uh, it might be different. <laughs> a lot of it is different. Yeah. So, yeah. And it, th- this is, this is your gift, by the way, in, in my opinion, this is your gift. You are incredibly gifted at that. And there's a certain thing whenever you listen to someone talk who claims to be rethinking a topic or a subject, as old as the Bible or concepts in the Bible. Shucks, if people talk about rethinking diet and exercise all the freaking time, right? That's right. But I, I don't I don't know why, just whenever you talk about it, I, I get this overwhelming sensation that this guy has legitimately looked at both sides of the aisle and he's a smart person. So I trust him. And I don't know what it is. I can't teach someone to do it. But yeah, yeah. you have it. And this is why your podcast is incredible. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And I know uh, just of what I've watched of your podcast and listened to, uh, this stuff is not easy to produce. It's not easy to uh, have somebody on like, like myself <laughs> um, and have an interesting conversation or present an idea or a topic and discuss it out. That's a very hard thing to do. More people are doing it than ever before, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of podcasts out there, yeah. and some of them yes. are horrible. <laughs> yes. And I think you're doing a, you're doing a great job be, just because if you look down the list of guests that you've had, uh, I mean, so you've got the guy from Rikers Island on talking about what it's like to be a guard, and then you've got somebody talking about Christianity, and then you got somebody – that's experiencing a cancer diagnosis. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, you're doing what I can't do. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be as well versed at, uh, being a host as you are. So kudos to you as well. So we've both patted each other. Yeah. On thank that, you so, so much. That's good. Hey, I, I appreciate it. Listen, as a guy, you could probably, probably relate. Nobody says nice things to us. I tell my wife, she's pretty every day. She never tells me I'm pretty. Damn it. I'm just That's joking. Right. That's right. <laughs> but but thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. I, I I appreciate it. And 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 I just talk to people who I think are cool. I think you're really cool. Um let me tell you something that that bothers me. And I thought it was only me, but whenever I talk to my buddies, it's 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 a thing. It's definitely a thing, which is how do I get to heaven? Right. And we talked about this, but what bugs a lot of people who don't go to church your whole life is the fact that depending on what denomination or what physical location you go to, that answer changes. And so now, right? So now I'm a guy, let's just say I've never been to church and I go to church three times or three separate churches and they all say different things on how I get to heaven. What the hell am I supposed to do? This is so confusing. How do I go about navigating this topic as someone who's never been to church? Yeah. Uh, that's good. And it's unfortunate that and let, you're let, Yeah, go ahead. 
let, let, let me just say my experience with this and why this frustrated me yeah. because I'm a diva and I need all the mic time. <laughs> no, but so I, so listen, I, I was raised in church my whole life, went to church. I went to church Wednesday nights. I went to church Thursday night for choir practice, Sunday morning. Uh, we had two services and then Sunday night, whole life went to church, best friends in church, love church, go to get married um, with my wife, go to her church great church. The pastor looks at me and he says, Chris, how do you go to heaven? And I tell him, boy, I tell him everything I know, this is how I go to heaven. And he said, Chris, that that's wrong. That's that, that is wrong. That's not how you get to heaven. You need to speak in tongues if you go to heaven. Oh, yeah, and he yeah. points out like four Bible verses, right? He, he has receipts. This is a smart guy. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. guy's super smart. And he points out like four or five Bible verses why I need to speak in tongues to go to heaven. And until I speak in tongues, if I die today, I won't go to heaven. So my entire life was a lie. And so at that point, I was pissed. I was like, what? Like, oh, man. And so then I started thinking, like, if this is me, a guy who's been raised in church, I talked to my buddies who never went to church, and they're having the same problems. And so now it's like, whoa, this is a huge issue. What are we supposed to do about this? Yeah. So I'm I'm curious because I've got a whole thing about the speaking in tongues thing. Did you listen to any of those on my podcast yet? Not not the ones on tongues, no. Okay. So uh, the most recent one I listened to. So I've got, uh, I've got was, four uh, I've got four things that uh are kind of my projects. I wrote the book on rest, that's my first one. Rethinking Babel, which is a rethinking the idea of speaking in tongues and what that means is another one of my projects and I've got probably five or six different episodes on that topic. And I look at it completely different than anybody that you've ever heard from. So I'll just toss that out there, but I feel, I feel your pain because we've made getting into heaven, a transactional thing that I'm not sure the Bible talks about it in those terms. So uh, when I described it earlier in our conversation today, I described there's there's a core set of beliefs that God knows what those core things are that you have to believe for that relationship to start. And when that relationship starts, that's in our terms, that's your ticket into heaven, right? What we've done, though, is we've got different churches making a list of what those core things are. Mm-hmm. And then each church has their own list. A lot of overlap, by the way. Most of them have the same core things. But then, like you said, with your wife's or church, um, that tradition may have added one or two things, speaking in tongues being one of those things that gets added sometimes in some circumstances um, to that list. And so we make it a transactional thing that you have to believe this, 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 and also do this. And that is proof that you've done it. It's a transaction, in other words. When when you go back, and, and even if it's not a speaking in tongues thing, what we do is, uh, you probably experience this in your church, uh, I talk about this a lot, uh, really bugs me, is the whole prayer down at the altar. It's like, I need to say a prayer to accept Jesus into my life. And it's basically a confessional mm. thing, just saying, um, I believe that Jesus died for me, I believe that he rose again from the grave, I believe these you know, the, the list, I believe I have to say that out loud and, uh, please come into my heart and forgive me of my sins and, 
this we've created this prayer that then gets said multiple times in most circumstances because you know you're not quite sure it stuck the first time. And so we say it again at the next camp we go to or the next Wednesday night or the next choir practice or whatever. Um, we just keep saying this prayer, and I think it gives us a really incorrect perception of this transaction that we've created, number one. And it's not what the Bible talks about at all. The Bible just talks about people believing believing something. And that's why I stay rather general. And I said, there's something that God knows you need to believe. I think I know what those core things are, and I'll tell you what I think they are. But really, it's not about a transaction that I create here in our cultural river. It's really about a relationship that gets started through believing that that story is a true story. I mean, how do we get you to the point that we believe the story that the Bible tells is a true story. When you can internally come to the conclusion without saying anything out loud, just come to the conclusion. I believe that. Uh, so yeah. uh, great example, C.S. Lewis, Are you familiar with C.S. Lewis at all as an author? No, no. Okay. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch and the wardrobe was made into a movie uh, a few years nice. back. So it church world kind of, dipped its toe into secular society in a way. But C.S. Lewis was really good friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, so the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, that's really uh, well accepted within and well known. C.S. Lewis is this brilliant guy, but he started out as an atheist. And then he started, and he was really heady, I mean, in Europe, in England. And he started out just having conversations with people that were people of faith. And he went from what an atheist, I know there's no God, in other words, um, to an agnostic, which is just a person that says, eh, I'm not sure there could be a God, but I'm not sure he exists or not. That's agnostic. He made that transition over months of conversations with these friends of his, J.R.R. Tolkien being one of those. And then he talks about the transition that he made from that agnostic state, kind of ambivalence about Eh, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. I'm not really convinced that there's not anymore. That's atheist. I'm now an agnostic. He made the transition from agnostic to being a believer. And the way he describes it, uh, it's in a book called Dis uh, Surprised by Joy. Um, joy mm -hmm. was his wife's name, but that's not, it's the joy that uh, happened when he came to a new set of beliefs. And the way he describes it is this. He had been processing this in his mind for months with his friends. And then his brother wants to take him to a new zoo that's opening up. It's grand opening day. So his brother has this motorcycle with a sidecar. You've seen him. I've never ridden in a sidecar, but you know what one is. <laughs> he gets yep. in the sidecar, puts his helmet on, is like a 30-minute drive to the brand new zoo that's opening. His brother's driving. He doesn't say a word the entire way. He says, all I know is when I got into the sidecar, I didn't believe in Jesus, in the story of Jesus. And when I got out of the sidecar at the zoo, I believed. Wow. That's his conversion story. And I'm like, that's brilliant. Because what that highlights is it highlights a process of internal change 
And what is it that you believe? It's not what you say. It's not what you say at an altar. It's not what you say to anybody outside. It's a transaction that only you, and if there is a God, if if there really is somebody, something that created this whole thing, and this story about Jesus is true, when you come to a certain belief about that, the truth of that story, that's sufficient enough to start a relationship in a new way with God, that's how you get to heaven. And it's unfortunate that we have made it so transactional in our churches. And why do we do that? It's because we have budgets that we need to pay. We have church buildings that we've built that have mortgages on them. And we need to have numbers of people that have come to Christ, the common language, that have made a decision of faith. And so how do you count somebody that comes to faith? Well, you have to have a transaction of some sort whether it's speaking in tongues, if you're in a church that believes that, or saying a prayer at an altar. Um, We have made it largely into a transaction that doesn't exist when you go back and read the story of Jesus in the Bible. All it says there is they believed, and it was an internal thing that eventually had some external behavior change, right? Because your beliefs cause you to change your behavior uh, in either good or bad ways so yeah yeah of course yeah i I love my wife so i'm nice to her uh could could you expand on that i I didn't know that or could you connect those dots a little bit better so churches come up with these set of beliefs to make it transactional to fulfill some quota how does that work well okay i'm i never heard of that i'm (laughs) speaking very coarsely and i'm letting you see behind the curtain right so um yeah, the the situation in America, and again, I'm just talking about our cultural river that we're swimming in right now. We've created church the way it looks, the way people are used to, but it's vastly different than church from a hundred years ago. It's vastly different from what existed three hundred years ago or eight hundred years ago, and our version of church a hundred years from now will look different than it does right now. So. Where we are right now is we have a lot of different denominations. So like I was a pastor in a Nazarene denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, okay? The Church of the Nazarene has a certain set of beliefs. Uh, We call them denominations, these different churches. So um, what would be the Baptists would be another denomination, okay? Then you've got different groups of Baptists, Southern Baptists and other types of Baptists. So each denomination has some sort of a distinctive, something that makes them distinctive above and beyond other denominations. So uh, when you talk about a Baptist, what makes a Baptist distinctive from other denominations? Well, it's their view on baptism. That's why they're called Baptists. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so when you get into the charismatic realm— um, that's where you get the distinctives about speaking in tongues. So not every church you go to is going to have the same thoughts about the gift of speaking in tongues. But if you go into certain charismatic type churches, uh, you're going to find people believing that speaking in tongues is important. That spiritual gift that the Bible talks very briefly about, by the way, not a lot on it, but they're going to hold to, that being part of the core transactional way that you get into heaven. And because it's their denominations distinctive, 
they're going to emphasize speaking in tongues pretty heavily. The Baptists are really going to emphasize baptism, right? Every denomination has a distinctive. There's a core set of beliefs that most of them all share, but then there's these little distinctives that say, this is what makes us different from all the other churches. And that's just, uh, we don't see that in the early church. We see this in our modern individualistic version of the American church, especially. Um, we, we love calling ourselves by our denomination. And that's largely what's going to be disappearing in the next generation, is people don't care about their distinctives as much. They just want to, can't we just all get along type idea, right? So what's yeah. the core set of beliefs? And can't we just agree upon a core set of beliefs? That's why you have non-denominational churches. That term is just those churches, they have a core set of beliefs, but they don't have any distinctives. They're not associating themselves with, we believe this specifically about baptism, so we're going to be a Baptist church. We're just going to focus mostly on the core set of beliefs, so we're non, we're not a part of another denomination that has a distinctive. So um, when, we, when we created the church that we have today, uh, this is one of my soapboxes, so thanks for asking the question. <laughs> Um, and this is not a conversation you can have in most church settings because people get offended in, yes. it's just, I, I was a part of the system for just long enough to know that there's a system and there's some, uh, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good things that happen within these systems. So, yes. and there's a good reason for these systems. It's just, there's also a huge downside by the way that we've structured our churches today. And they're largely built around the show of Sunday morning, which requires a large auditorium, which means you have to build a large auditorium, which means you usually have to take on a mortgage, which means as a pastor, yeah. I am thinking about paying my monthly obligations that, yeah. you know, I got to pay my church staff and I got to, you create this machine to get the gospel out and it's a good yeah. thing to get the gospel out. But while you're creating that machine, you're also creating obligations. And part of those obligations are how do we know we're even making a difference? Well, we start, we got to start counting people. How many people that didn't used to believe now believe what we believe because of the message that we, because of our program. And so we count baptisms. We count people praying at an altar, a sinner's prayer, and we we set that as a high bar of see the success that we're having, right? All these numbers. Yeah. So evangelists do this too. Um, uh, I won't name names, but there's a very well-known uh, former football player who has a dad that was an evangelist, still is actually. And he spreads out a spreadsheet uh, and prints it out and says, this is how many decisions for Christ that we had. And it's all part of, uh, I think it all starts honestly. It all starts from a good heart, but yeah. it, creates a, a, it creates a transactional arrangement that the Bible doesn't talk about. The Bible doesn't say, um, why are we counting people? Uh, the Bible didn't have buildings that had mortgages where you had to keep people happy 
so that they would give so that you could pay your people so that you wouldn't have to move your family, right? That's just non-existent yeah. in the Bible times. But it's part of the church culture. Some of that is very good. Some of that, unfortunately, is not good. And um, that's what uh, I'm so eager to see the next generation come in. And um, I was I was glad to see the pandemic happen, not from a you know people hurting <laughs> standpoint, but what the pandemic did, not just in the church world, but in everybody's life, it just shook everybody up a little bit, and it exposed yeah. our our weaknesses. And so that's why you get a lot of people talking about mental health now is because during the pandemic, we were forced to look at ourselves in a mirror pretty hard. And some of us don't do well with that. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, no. we can fake it until we make it under the old system. But now, you know, I got to spend time with myself. What's that all about? So, um, and the same thing's happening in the church. We're all having to ask the question, um, what is it that needs to survive? What good things have we done that needs to survive to the next generation? But what is it that we've created that just needs to flat out change? And let's get rid of the bad. And sometimes it's not as easy to identify. It's just like running a business. You don't always know what's going to work. Yeah. You don't always know if getting rid of a certain employee, if that employee is really the problem or if it's something else. It's the same within the church. We're just, yeah. Trying to figure it out. Did, did I answer yeah, your to, question? To your point. Oh, oh yeah, of course. More yeah. than. Uh, thank you. Uh, to, to your point, it, it, the church is not bad for this. You could imagine if you were to go back and you started a church and you ran it for 10 years, wouldn't you want to know, hey, are we even making an impact, guys? Oh, like, yeah. do we even know? You know, yep. so this is a. Like th this is not from a, a, a bad place, but I would like to see the denominations go because I've talked to people and they ask me the question I ask you and there's no good answer. It's like, yeah. hey, Pastor Joe said that I got to speak in tongues. Pastor Bob said I'm not going to heaven until I uh, get baptized. And Pastor Steve said I'm not going to heaven until I take communion. Yeah. So you know what? Screw all of them. Yeah. I ain't going to church no more. And I can't be mad at my friends for that because it's so confusing whenever these people who write pastors are high and mighty, um, not, and I'm, I'm not being disparaging, but they're always dressed nice. They're very well spoken. Um, they're usually very well groomed. They're the leader of this whole freaking thing. And so I, I, I tell my buddies, I'm like, yeah, dude, I mean, that's, that's really confusing. Uh, I, I don't have any advice for you. I mean, I don't, I don't believe what these pastors are saying, but they went to school for the Bible and I didn't. So yeah. of course they would know better. I would think, um, in, 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 in my opinion, what I think the church's superpower is going forward is community because nobody has it. Uh, there, the two strongest places I've experienced community in my entire life was one in, in no order, I guess, huh, if I had to rank them. It would probably be number one, the hood, a.k.a. poor people, poverty. Uh, poor people are extremely tight-knit, extremely tight-knit. And then number two was the church. Yep. And you can't experience that anywhere else. And people really crave this sense of community. And church is a great place for it. And it's a great positive environment. You'll get free food and uh, smiling, smiling faces. Coffee. <laughs> Coffee in the lobby. Holy cow. Yeah. Oh, it's better than it. that. Yeah. I And... You know, I want to be careful because I, I have a lot of friends still as pastors, and 
everybody doing that job is doing it honestly. I mean, they're just trying to do the best they can. It's just that I think we've built this system that has created more confusion in certain areas, in certain ways. And I think our denominations uh, historically have brought some good things. They bring accountability. Um, That's what denominations do. Uh, You don't want a bunch of just rogue churches out there. That's when you get uh, people starting to believe things that are wacky. Uh, A denomination will bring those outliers in and make them conform to maybe a core set of beliefs. So denominations, the idea of denominations are okay. Um, It's just maybe the way they've played out. Uh, Not everything is always beneficial. And I think one of the the ways, yeah, one of the ways that we uh, have failed is these distinctives have become more important. The speaking in tongues have become more important than the core set of beliefs. What is it that you might really just need to believe to start that relationship? And why are we tacking more on to that? Why is it that we feel it's so important? What has gotten us to the point where we were willing to add a prayer at an altar where there's no prayer at an altar in the entirety of the Bible uh, unto salvation? We've created that. Um, And if that's good, hey, let's keep it. But Mm. if that's causing more confusion, uh, let's reevaluate that. And let's see if there's something better, right? And it's, yeah. And then historically, you know, you can go back into the Middle Ages and the Roman Catholic Church and the way they've raised funds and look at all the corruption uh, anytime you get money and power involved in uh, a faith system, it tends to corrupt it. So to the extent that money and power is making decisions over just a core set of beliefs, um, that is a dangerous scenario for any organization because the money and power will eventually begin to speak more loudly than um, maybe the more important things. So, hey, could you talk about that real quick? So you you were a pastor, or you have pastor friends. So yeah. he, man, this is so interesting. I, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to be disparaging of the church at all, or anything yeah, like yeah, that. No. I think it's fantastic. Everybody go to church this Sunday, and everybody listen to Greg's podcast. <laughs> Two things on your bucket list. Uh, so let's say you're the pastor, right? Yeah. And and you brought up a great point. I'd never thought about this, but it's so true. You have a mortgage, dude. You have people on staff. You have a family to feed. So what happens if, like, let's say I preach about um, tithing, giving money to the church, and I get $1,000, and then the next week I preach about how the Bible thinks you should be rich, and I get $5,000 in donations that day. Is it how, as a pastor, do you, how do you avoid changing your message whenever you're financially incentivized to maybe preach something that is not in your heart? Yeah. Well, and part of the problem with the structure is we've created the CEO model of head pastor in our, again, our cultural river. Oftentimes there's one head pastor who is the guy that preaches, who is also the guy that largely sets the budget that is the guy that leads the yeah. 
the board of, you know, whatever you call them, leaders in the church is the guy that makes a lot of the major decisions, right? The CEO model, like, because that's how businesses are run. So why shouldn't we just run the church that way? The problem is if I'm the pastor that's running the budget and I know what the numbers are and I know, let's say we're $50,000 behind on our budget and it's coming up on November and, you know, that's going to, we're not going to be able to make our payment next month. Um, that knowledge, I'm not saying directly influences always, but there's always this indirect underline of, man, we got to kickstart something. We need to, we need to create a program that gets more people in the door. How do we, how yeah. do we get more people in the door? Because we're just not even making our covering our bills. Do I need to lay off staff? Well, if I lay off staff, then you know, maybe that's the youth pastor. And then what do the kids do? I mean, we're going to lose all the families. So maybe I should hire another youth. Pa I mean, it's just this constant, uh, constant uh, hamster wheel is all I can kind of say of trying to figure <laughs> out where the culture is, uh, the broader culture of America, the culture of my specific church, uh, the budget, uh, do I have all the power? Am I the one making the decisions or can I hand that off? Because ultimately what would be best is having a teaching pastor that all that guy does is work on relationship with people and teaching the Bible. And then you have yeah. another guy that's really gifted with finances. I mean, that's his calling, right? Maybe he's not the best speaker, but he's a really good guy with finances and he's in charge of the budget. And those two are making decisions, maybe not totally devoid of each other, but largely not influenced by each other. So as I'm, if I'm a teaching pastor, I'm just spending on, okay, what's the core beliefs that we're struggling with because I know my community well. And if one of those is finances, I need to feel the freedom to talk about finances, whether it's tithing or whether everybody thinks they should be rich and maybe I need to speak to that and correct that assumption or whatever. But oftentimes finances are just a small portion of a, a larger situation that people are dealing with. Uh, what do I do with my grief? Right. I've, I've lost something, whether it be a spouse or, or, you know, a, a child or a job, or how do I deal with my grief? Does the Bible say anything about that? And if I'm really in tune with my congregation as a pastor, I should be feeling the pulse of my congregation and then preaching to that pulse just completely yeah. separate from the financial reality of how do the bills get paid. That's in a perfect world. Uh, that rarely happens. It's, I mean, wow. and to what degree the influence is there, it varies dramatically. Some people, it's very minor with the finance. Some churches have done very well. They've paid for their building as they go along, and so there's no debt. And so debt doesn't really even play and they've got good givers in their church. And so they're just, the pastor doesn't even think about finances because it just happens. But sometimes in our growth model of we need to have a big church. And so we need to build a bigger, better something. So the people will come and be attracted by it. Um, sometimes that creates a financial situation that then hamstrings or hog ties uh, the staff into having to come up with programs and ideas to how do we attract 
more people into our church. And again, people are doing this honestly. It's not like they're trying to manipulate. They're, they truly believe that this story about Jesus is true. They're just trying yes. to figure out how do we do that best in our and if I'm a pastor and I get hired at a church, that church, like I said earlier, already has a culture. They have people that have been going there for 25 years, and it's going to be really hard for me to come in and make a change, a significant change. And I saw that multiple times in the church I served in because we had three different head pastors while I was there in 10 years. And people came in with an idea, oh, this is how I'd like to change it. And oftentimes uh, the— the congregation wasn't as excited about the change as the pastor was. Let me just say that. Let's say it that way. <laughs> yeah, that that happens. And I find or I've seen in the past where the congregation tends to go from following Christ to like following the pastor. And I don't mean that like in a culty way, how everybody's thinking, but just man, that pastor can maybe put a spin on a Bible verse, which is totally normal, right? They interpret the Bible. This is their job that maybe a lot of people don't agree with, but they're like, oh yeah, you know, Pastor Steve said that. Ah, that, that that's Pastor Steve, man. He yeah. got it. <laughs> and that kind of like, uh, they kind of build that pastor up to be an idol sometimes and, um, and to go against his ways, even if it's teaching the same book, can, like you said, it can rub people the wrong way. Yeah. And we've all heard the stories. the The stories that make the news are the worst ones. the The ones where things just go horribly yes. wrong, where you got this really headstrong guy that's given all the power, and somehow through it all, it becomes about money, and there's yeah. abuse that happens any number of ways, and then it makes the headlines. And it's like, how did that happen? And it just one step at a time, right? And again, most of the churches don't end up in the news because they figured out some sort of a rhythm that makes sense. It's just, we've created this idea that bigger is better. Yeah. Uh, more people hearing the story of Jesus is better, but a bigger church might not be better. Um, bigger individual church might just, uh, in our culture might cause a lot of problems that are hard to recover from. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I'm currently attending a very small church, and I love it. And it has problems too, by the way. Uh, uh, lots of problems all along the way. Uh, it's just because people attend, and we are problem people. Uh, we bring our problems with us, and um, but it's it's good. You know, my my ministry, my podcast. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have everything free. I don't ask people for money. I'm not creating a 501c3. I don't want that to even be a part of it. And thankfully, my time in real estate and some of the other careers that I've had have helped finance, so I'm able to do that. So um, I feel honored and privileged to just be in the position I am so that that doesn't have to be a part of it. Like when I get book sales, like I spoke at a church this last week and uh, took some donations for the book and all that money is just going, I've got this homes and help initiative that I give back to the community. So I don't even make any money. Uh, don't want that to ever be the perception. And that's just, uh, that's just not me being pious. That's just me 
seen, oh, that can be a problem. So let's not, let's not take that first step. So, yeah. Well, 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 don't, don't uh, kind of put yourself down because that's a freaking hard decision, right? I mean, that's, this is the decision that 99.9% of humans fall for. It's like, Hey, I can make a sack of money or I can keep my integrity. And this is why my favorite pastors to listen to are the poor ones, are the ones yeah. that drive 10-year-old cars. One of my favorite online pastors is Paul Washer, who is, I mean, this guy is, he makes no money. He travels the world or whatever. He doesn't drive any fancy cars or whatever. And it just, I, it's, it speaks to my soul. I, I don't know. It's just a genuineness to that. And I appreciate that you do that. My last question to you. Yeah. Um, and let, let me just say, I, I don't know if I've come off sounding anti-church or whatever, but that's just could not be further from the truth. Um, well, I don't know because if I've come off sounding anti-church because I tend to do that just because <laughs> I've got this whole negative, you know, thing. And, and I think just like you, I think I see some problems. And so when I talk yeah. about the problems, I want to make sure that those are identified as problems, but just because I only talk about problems, maybe in this setting, the church is doing a lot of good. There's community out there. Like you said, it was one yes. of the one or top two things that gave you community growing up. And that's really what the church is good at, what it should be good at. And if we can take care of some of the problems and get back to what we're, what we should be good at, that that'd be great. Yeah. And by the way, all the problems that I've mentioned is stuff that you will not even notice. Like the first three years you go to church, <laughs> yeah, totally. it's just you you, whenever you get into anything. Yeah. You get a peek behind the curtain. You, you found out what they really are. You know, listen, I've been working with computers yeah. uh, for a while, eight years or whatever. And the first three years of my of working with computers, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. Now I could do a seven hour podcast on how much computers suck. So it's just, we're just kind of talking yeah. shop. But my last question is, and this kind of baffles me, it kind of gets back to, I think the church is awesome. Why, do, in your opinion, do you think Christianity, uh, Jesus, the church is demonized so much in society today? Um, I, a lot of stuff that I see or that I hear people bringing up is that the Catholic priests, you know, molested these young boys. Terrible, by the way. Um, but just in general, it's demonized in ways that I never experienced growing up. The church was a fantastic place. I met some of my best friends. Some of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life were in church. Some of the most amazing moments of my life were in church. Um, some of the best church people have donated and sent me on vacations. They sent me on camps. They bought me food, clothes whenever I couldn't. Um, it's fantastic. And while we just talked for well over an hour about some issues, I don't understand where all of the hate comes from uh, nowadays. What, what's your opinion? Yeah. So I, I would say there's probably a couple different things. Uh, number one is when things go bad, they go bad publicly in usually a big way. So if you're talking about uh, molestations or uh, different types of just horrific things that happen, and it's not we're not picking on any denominations or any one, because this is happening everywhere, no. right? Um, uh, so the abuses that happen, whether they be financial or physical or whatever, um, when those go bad, they go bad usually in a big way in their public, 
And so that can leave a bad taste in people's mouths, uh, rightly so, right? Uh, we should learn from those things and try and prevent those things from happening over and over again as much as we can. We got to prevent that. The other thing, though, putting that aside, let's say those things weren't happening and we only had, we never had that bad press happening for the church or the Christian faith. The Bible's pretty clear that, um, the message, one of the messages is if there really is a God that created this whole thing, he's kind of set up a set of rules. We go back to the creation account, a lot of debate about how you should read the creation account, but, um, it's basically the setting up of an order and a structure where everything has a place to be and a thing to do. This is the way I say it in my book, um, a function and an order, a proper way of doing things. And that has been turned upside down so that the world that we live in is largely running by a set of rules that we've created uh, that is vastly different than the biblical story, the way it's created. That's why the message of Jesus is so compelling is because if you go in and actually look at what he said, he's like, you're like asking, what world is this guy from? Because it's not the world that I live in. And he's talking about a set yeah. of rules about how this whole thing was supposed to work from the get-go. And so when somebody comes to faith in Jesus, you're also coming to faith in what he said and you're accepting the set of rules on how this whole thing is supposed to, for instance, the meek shall inherit the earth. The, so it's not going to be the big flashy. It's not going to be the richest. It's not going to be that inherit the earth mm -hmm. from that perspective. Really, the way you do this is that the last shall be first in the afterlife. So don't worry about being first in this life. Well, what is more contrary <laughs> to the message of modern culture, then you need to finish last. That's where you should be aiming for. That's a great point. Is let everybody finish ahead of you. Well, that's not going to be a popular message, no matter who you're talking to. Unless you've bought into, you know what? The world out there sucks so bad, I'm willing to try anything. <laughs> I'm... I'm willing to listen to this crazy guy from 2000 years ago that's talking in, I mean, he's upside down world. That's what he's talking. But you know what? Some of that at least makes sense. Um, I need to love people yeah. in a way that uh, doesn't normally happen. Well, I would love that if that happened to me. So yeah, maybe I'll give that a shot. Those messages, when we go out and say what Jesus said, the world's going to hate it just because it doesn't make sense. So um, number one, I think, I think there's a, uh, two reasons to answer your question, two reasons at opposite ends of the spectrum. When we are faithful to give the true message that Jesus gave, people aren't going to like it because it's upside down for the world. And then the other end of the spectrum is we often do a horrible job of abusing people in wrong ways that are never part of the gospel. And that gets attached to the message because of these two reasons. It's amazing. This message has even lasted to today. I mean, I'm surprised it just did disappear. And the fact that it's still around yeah. might be worth listening to. That's, that's all I got. I completely agree. Uh, well, Greg, 
Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've genuinely enjoyed this. I think your kindness and patience have been on full display over these past couple hours. Um, where can where can people find you, and what are you working on? Yeah, so like I said, my first book, uh, which took me twelve or fourteen years to actually get out, so I'm really excited. It came out in January. It's called Rethinking Rest. It's just what does the whole Bible have to say about this topic of rest? And I think we've greatly confused the original content and the message that was originally given. So it's 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 a it's a good book uh, that looks at those topics. Um, my podcast, like you said earlier, was Rethinking Scripture, and it's got the RethinkingScripture.com website that is attached to it. I've also got the book website, RethinkingRest.com. And when you get on those sites, you can find all the other places that I do my business. So cool. The YouTubes and all that stuff. Yeah, the YouTubes. I'm um, on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I've tried my hand at TikTok. I'm trying to be as relevant as possible. <laughs> it, it is it is exhausting, nice. <laughs> by the way. It is exhausting. Nice. Uh, awesome. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes, of course. And anything else you want me to put, Greg, once again. Thank you so much for coming on, dude. You're awesome. Ah, it's been a great conversation. My goal really was to be the longest conversation you've had so far. And I think we may have gotten near it, if not over it. So uh, that was really my only awesome. goal. That's why I kept talking so much. <laughs> <laughs> Success. <laughs> you win. Go. There we go. It's a win. Nice talking to you.